This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Paul. Hey, I'm Evan. We're going to talk about The Mucker, a novel from 1914 uh, by Edgar Rice Burroughs. I've, I've done a bunch of other Edgar Rice Burroughs uh, shows on this podcast. Have you been on any, Paul? I've not been on any shows where we've done Burroughs. It's been a while. There was a podcaster named David Stifel who uh, was recording uh, pretty much everything Burroughs in the public domain. And there's a lot because he was very prolific and he started early. But he also renewed everything. So after a certain point... Uh, he didn't. He wasn't going to do any more recording. Um, and I kept asking him about this book, um, and I, I think he shied away from it. Um, and the, I think the reason he shied away from it is not because it was a bad book, but because it's more explicitly racist than a lot of his other stuff. Oh God, yes. Um, I didn't find it that bad. I mean, it, it, certainly there's some language in there that he calls the. Japanese Malay guys chinks, which isn't you know not a cool word anymore. Uh, but he also uses this you know sort of um, he calls somebody a dago, and it's with affection. It's sort of just I think it's a class thing. Um, and I, I yeah. thought that was interesting. And I, I think this is a very interesting book to look at from uh, a, a historical perspective. And um, I don't know if I consciously thought about it when I was thinking about Evan, but it's all—it's very much about class, especially the end. Um, yeah, I think that's—that's that's what I was drawn to a lot more than the the racial stuff, because it was just mostly terminology. Mm-hmm. It wasn't—it's—it's it's not like—I mean, you got those Japanese that are like they're so out of context. I mean, they're headhunters. Mm-hmm. They're like they're isolates. You know, they're, they're like. They're- but the out of time, so the, it might yeah. it might as well be on Mars, right? Mm-hmm. That's I, yeah. <laughs> so it doesn't really matter that much, and I mean there is a historical context about Asia and the Yellow Peril stuff that we should talk about at some point. But yeah, I was much more bothered by the the class politics of of, of this novel. This I still think this is this is a brilliant novel. That's so important, actually. brilliant, it's quite. Say. Yeah, it's quite. Uh, fascinating i i find yeah. it enjoy i i always find burroughs incredibly relaxing yeah. and enjoyable because he's his writing is very very smooth mm-hmm. and easy and uh you know it it's it's not dense but it's 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 just i can see the appeal like edgar rice burroughs yeah. I, I i don't know how much you guys know about how popular he was but amongst sort of modern day people he's not super popular there's a the you know, the descendants of the estate and the licensees and all those people try and push his stuff a lot. And they do, you know, to fairly good success. But he has a massively loyal, older fan base. And if you look at, like, just type in Edgar Rice Burroughs and go looking around the Internet, you'll find a ton of really old websites that are absolutely dedicated to Edgar Rice Burroughs. And it's not for nothing. It's not because he's just another name out there. It's because he has this smooth style. So I find it a very relaxing and, and fun book. Um, but I don't yeah, find it to be but I think deep. <laughs> no, I, I'm not saying it's it's brilliant into in that being deep. It's 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 just that he threw all this together. In the, and it's a very short novel. Mm. And all of this is in there. And it 
I, I like how you say it. It just goes down so easily. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's so I, fun. I mean, yeah, you, you need that. Not everything has to be deep and profound. No. Uh, and um, I, I, but, I was thinking about how much, it, like, uh, it's very co- comparable to um, the last Melville novel we did, right? It was a couple, a couple of uh, Taipei, yeah, yeah. Taipei, a couple of sailors yeah. uh, on a deserted island, or not a deserted island, island full of headhunters, right? And and um, you know, and thinking about how different that book is, because basically Edgar Rice Burroughs doesn't know anything about the world; <laughs> he just knows America, yeah. right? Whereas Melville's literally, it's it's a travel log saying, "Look, this is what it's like there, and and these are my experiences." And it's very different. Melville's take on stuff is different, but Burroughs is smooth, absolutely. I, I do. I, 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 I'm glad you brought up Type E because I was going to bring it to myself because it is, it is kind of uh, interesting that we came up with novels with uh, protagonists on, on headhunting islands, and the, 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 dif- the differences couldn't be. Larger. I mean, Mel, I mean, Mel, Mel, Melville's all about the detail, all about the anthropology and the sociology of the islands and how his character fits into it, and go, go and and inserting that into into uh, the whole historical context of what the French and the British were doing. As I had said on that podcast, I think the whole point of that novel was that appendix where he's talking about what happened in the Sandwich Islands and he just wanted to hang his travelogue in on, on top of that just to point out, like, look what we're doing to these islands. This mm. is bad. Whereas Edgar Rice Burroughs, on the other hand, I mean, I mean I've, I've read a couple of Tarzan novels. I've read, I've read the Mars novels, of course. And he, he, he's much, he's much more smooth, Action, action beats, adventure, man, man against the world, trying to rise to the top. And I, 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 I was really surprised by the ending. I mean, I could see the ending coming and I thought maybe of it was going to be a way, of the mucker. Yeah. Because, I mean, it just felt like, I, okay, so we, we got a Burroughs protagonist. He starts down on his luck. He's a, he's a ruffian hooligan brawler who's, who can't, uh, temperance himself well with drinks in order to make anything of himself in life and though he could be great but he isn't and then he's thrown into this situation where he can rise above his previous status and be somebody and win win, win the girl and do all that and he doesn't he, he walks away at the end and I thought the hell <laughs> I mean that's like, that's like John Carr saying no I don't want you Asia Thoris, I'm going to walk off it's into the desert. interesting, right? Because like, that's a, it's a, it's 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 something I I think it's easy to to miss, uh, or m- not miss as in misidentify, but miss as in not notice that the pattern repeats itself, right? So uh, with Tarzan, we've got Lord Greystoke becomes a a uh, wild you know wild man with no manners and no <laughs> no anything, and then he meets Jane and and. Uh, becomes civilized all basically all on his own, learning to read from little squiggles in his baby books, and and uh, eventually becomes not just Lord of the Jungle, but Lord Greystoke, inheriting his his parents' estate and blah mm-hmm. blah blah. Princess of Mars, you've got a an officer at least he was an officer in the army, uh, but he ends up dating a princess and marrying a princess, right? Uh, yeah, she's of another yeah, race, yeah. on another planet, but um. Ultimately, <laughs> in the mucker, um, the lowest class Chicago uh, hoodlum um, cannot ascend. 
right? And and I was like, this is interesting because when it comes too close to home. <laughs> oh God, yes. I mean, right? it, it, it's a lot about it's modern literally society. aristocracy and, is the word he uses, right? Multiple times. Yes. Yeah. So he can't yeah. ascend, but I guess what the the class politics that troubled me here is he he still is somewhat of 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 reformed by this yes. this aristocratic figure, right? That's he becomes the hero because he's sort of shamed by. But it's aristocratic figures, right? So uh, yeah. how do we pronounce was, the French guys at Derriere? <laughs> Derriere, yeah. Derriere with a D. Terrier, right? It was a T. Yeah. So Terrier would, would <laughs> I was thinking it was Derrier, like it's his butt, you know. <laughs> but um, and you know, he's he's not he's a he's one of these models for our hero, right? Or our mm-hmm. anti-hero. Um, and he turns into kind of a hero, I guess, and he acts heroic. And I I think it's an interesting sort of attack on on a genuine problem. This class of people is not. A non, it's not nothing. It, there are people who have upbringings like Billy, Billy Byrne, right? Really terrible upbringings, basically. Alcoholism, and I think how interesting alcoholism is in this story. Like it's almost like he's trying to make a point, and that's not very Burroughs-like to try and make a you know sociological point that's resonating. Yeah. And and I think he had to deal with it because he's. He's trying to take it seriously as much as you know he does take things seriously. But uh, just, but you know, I, I'm I'm thinking of Jack London. Mm-hmm. I actually I'm thinking of, of a of a couple of different works that kind of go on either side of this. But just take Jack London overall. He's got similar characters like this, mm-hmm. kind of from the streets, very working class, very vulgar, whatever. And he does sometimes do the class switching. There's a story. I don't know if you uh, read this one. Uh, it's by Jack London, where uh, the guy's like a, a researcher, and he's going studying like the slums of somewhere in California, and eventually like crosses over and becomes working class because he likes it better than his bougie mm. academic job. Uh, I forget the name of that one, but if you take like Martin Eden or a character, I guess he's maybe the best example of a character like that who's really kind of working class from the streets. Right now, there's elements in that book where he kind of gets reformed. There's even a similar scene where, you know, he's he's learning how to speak from a middle class woman. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, Martin Eden doesn't really need to learn anything from the middle class. And and he, like Ernst Everhart in The Iron Heel, mm-hmm. these characters don't really need the middle class to to learn to 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 fulfill themselves and to become fully, you know, fully realized characters. Right. He'll deal with class antagonism, but not as a way to kind of not this reformist agenda. Mm. Yeah. Right. And and I think of a later work, uh, which I really like. And one reason I was interested in this novel is because it was it did seem on the cover to be a working class story of, of like the underclass right. was the other. But I was thinking of Stuntz Lonigan, the the the. J.T. Farrell or T.J. Farrell, whatever, however his name is, the Stuns Lonigan trilogy. And that's more of a, that's in the 30s. So that's more just ennui about capitalism. And it's, that's a descent from kind of the streets to alcoholism and, and total poverty and degradation. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, too, the, the characters don't really need to learn anything from, from the middle class. They're just in, in Stuns Lonigan, they're, 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 they're creating the system that's making people's lives miserable. And I think it is kind of that way for London too. So 
that that's what really bothered me more than anything else about this novel is that that this character who has all these qualities and you know he need you know he's he's not really awakened into his heroic moment till he's sort of shamed by the by this rich woman mm-hmm. and then told how to speak and and yes that 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 so is sort of the funniest his arc part is, right? is is not really his own I I think. Yeah, it's interesting. It's, it's interesting. I, I I think you know we can underplay the the role of Derriere and there's a <laughs> Derriere and the um there's another guy the the uh, boyfriend of Mallory. Yeah. So the the goes Barbara's the one who really kind of definitely is she, to she definitely him, she's right? definitely um uh, uh, but uh, like thinking of the classes right yeah. which ones are represented. Well, mostly it's the bottom and the top, right? The middle classes yeah. don't really exist in this story. There are, there's the captain of the ship, I guess, who's you know, gonna, he's like, um, he's like the man in the in the. Uh, uh, I, I always I, I I think when we do our, um, the show I've been sort of avoiding doing uh, on Jack London's um, Call of the Wild, I'm gonna definitely have to have you on evan because i i always think of of this story arc of buck right he starts as a yeah as a pampered king in california sunny california right all, king of all he surveys and then becomes a um a as low class thing he becomes a slave and then eventually becomes free in a new way in a way that he never was before as his you know uh tame king and there's mm-hmm. this a very famous scene in the in the book when he meets the man with the red sweater, right? He never gets a name, yeah. but yeah. he's got the club and he teaches uh, Buck, you know, the power of man over beast. And um, it's it's just a brutal lesson in beating, basically. Um, but this is kind of where Billy is, our um, our our hero Billy is in this story. Because he, you know, he suffered abuse from, like, physical abuse from his mom. Right? <laughs> we don't know. We I don't know if there ever was mention of a dad, right? Um, and his he doesn't have friends. He only has uh, heroes, right? Who are basically thieves and murderers. And so this is a real transformation in a certain sense. But it's it becomes very very Burroughsian in its romance. <laughs> quite strangely for like a I don't know a few chapters where he's you know stuck alone on this island in a paradise and, and they start talking oh yeah about, on the on, yeah. on the island within an island yeah with Barbara I, I thought okay I'm following this yep they're gonna fall in love <laughs> that's it's it's good yeah and yeah it just veers away from that so definitively yep. what was Burroughs thinking I mean oh, why no, that's, no, that's normal Burroughs mode right if you read the Princess of Mars <laughs> Um, you know, he, he, he has love for dogs <laughs> and he has love for girls and he loves falling in love. He's very romantic. I, th- I think that that's, uh, a large part of the appeal. It's not just the romance of, you know, swords, swords and, uh, sandals, but it's also our swords and laser pistols or whatever it is on, in, in you know, Carson of Venus <laughs> and all that stuff. But he, radium pistols, radium pistols. There you go. Uh, it's, it's, it's also the romance of friendship. Right, so he gets emotional a few times. One, uh, one, one of those times is with Barbara, but he also gets emotional, emotional with Terrier. Right, um, he's like a true friend, and they basically start crying. 
right? Um, and this is uh, the sort of, you know, kind of friendship that that uh, that all our heroes get. I guess Tarzan a little less, so he's more isolated. Um, but he at least has those kinds of relationships with animals, right? Um, his brother and his mother, animals. Um, so uh, the, that part of me, that was like, that was the most Burroughsian part of the book. But it, it's interesting because in this process of transformation from a, uh, he's almost not even the main character for a lot of the book. You guys notice that? Yeah. Like yeah, he, 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 sur- he out-survives a lot of the potential main characters. And yet the title, The Mucker, and The Mucker, you know, that's his appellation, that's his epithet that comes up again. Given to him by Barbara. Yeah, but also by the narrator, who calls him a mucker basically on the first page, right? Um, And describes what a well, pretty much what a mucker is. It's like, and also this is a a term that survives uh, not because of, of Burroughs himself in this book, I think, but he's picking up on a term that was actually in use, right? Um, this is a yeah, yeah. I looked it up uh, so somewhere. It's people in in the military will call each other muckers because basically they're in the muck, right? They're they're digging the trenches and they're when it's raining they're covered in this basically in shit. Um, and to muck out something is you know muck out stalls. It's like it's the low. It means low class person, right? And that, I mean that's that dirt doesn't ever rub off. A, a, you know he 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 fixes his his grammar right and i love the way that uh, barbara describes how you know he can improve himself just by improving his grammar <laughs> the thing is, is this is literally true if you want to get into university you can't use low class grammar right you have to use high class grammar it's it's literally true that if you want to make that transformation and move between classes you have to act like the class you're moving into. And that includes speech. Uh, for, for the fun of it, I went into Engram Viewer on Google Books and put mucker in, mm-hmm. and it peaks about 1921 as far as usage in English literature. Yeah, and I would think that, a lot of that is, is people writing about World War One. Yeah. And, and, I mean, it's always been in use. There's another peak just before the Second World War, but then it goes down after that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I would think it it's it's a lot to do with you know just the those guys in the muck, uh, not and and the people who are sent there, you know sh- sure there are some uh, high class people sent to World War One that's that's the trauma right yeah. is that uh, the most dignified sons of of uh, our nation are being ground up in the meat grinder, right this is the horror. It's indiscriminate. <laughs> Those shells and gas—they don't—they don't, they don't uh, discriminate between the classes. This is unacceptable. We've got to stop this, is, right? So there's a lot of interesting things going on, and 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 the the sudden reform, um, you know, that Billy goes is—he's going to abstain from alcohol, right? Because that was basically what was keeping him down. I think that there, this is like very reflective of what was going on in the minds of people. At the time this book is being written, in the nineteen, what thirteen, fourteen. Well, yeah. yeah. Well, it's it's the beginning. It's the middle of the progressive era, right? And that's one one of their agendas of many of the the middle class 
progressives was like clean up the city, right? As as America became became more urbanized, urban problems became more visible, right? And and as the center of the country became more urban, that's when you you know it's like oh we have prostitutes, we have drunkards, we mm. have class problems. And so that's when we have the settlement house movement, and we have sewer socialism in, in cities like Milwaukee, where you start to get public you know public utilities. Uh, all these different efforts to clean up the city, right? That was a huge part of the the progressive movement. But of course, part of that also was the temperance, or those kind of revival of this temperance movement, mm-hmm. um, which of course was successful eventually, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, when was that Eighteenth Amendment passed? Oh, it's got to be in nineteen nineteen twenty, something like that. So it's successful yeah, it's like in a certain was sense. Blame for for this. Uh, like the decline in in America, right? I, you know, I'm sure there was plenty of rural alcoholism back in like Jefferson's days. You know, it's just it's kind of it's not as conspicuous, right. so it doesn't become the center. Maybe I guess then you, you did have that temperance movement in the early 19th century too. But the city is really kind of you know everything became clear because you saw it when you walked around. And you know, it's it, it, it's my experience in reading about drugs, uh, and I've read a lot about drugs for a person who doesn't really. I, I do coffee; that's my main drug. I, I'm really interested in drugs because they're escaping, uh, you know, reality by putting something in your body rather than changing the reality around you. But <clears throat> my experience with reading about the history of drugs is that people seem to. Um, sort of misidentify mis- the power of a drug when it's sort of in its, in its ascendancy, and then uh, they need to sort of clamp down on it later on, you know, sort of like get get out, get out from under the control of it. So uh, most of the people I know, I don't, I don't think I know anybody who smokes uh, cigarettes anymore, right? Um, they're just, it's, it's been clamped down in pricing, it's been clamped down in in personal virtue, it's been clamped down in in, the, in under law. You can't smoke in certain places. Yet still, there are people who like. I know they they still smoke. I, I know one person who still smokes. Now that I think about it, um, cigarettes. Um, but uh, come to China, smoke cigarettes. Sure, and you know, you know when I went, uh, I visited the UK and Europe um, in 1990. And I found uh, the amount of smoking going on there was insane. Like, it seemed everybody smoked compared to what, you know, we had out here in Western BC or Western Canada, where we uh, had, like, one of the least uh, smoking populations in in the world, right? But uh, one, of, one of my students was pointing out, actually more than one of my students was pointing out that vaping is totally taking off, right? And that kids at school are vaping in the bathroom, right? Something that, something that you, you wouldn't see with cigarettes uh, in the last 20 years, basically, at all. Um, you know, the fact that uh, when I was in high school, it was even becoming quite rare for anybody to smoke in indoors in the bathroom. They there was a special section of the of the schoolyard where kids would smoke. They called it the smoking pit, right? And pretty much it was just a few kids, and they were the bad ones, right? <laughs> it's the yeah. idea. But vaping is totally taking off, even though it's of course you know the same drug. It doesn't have the same 
stigma attached. It doesn't. We don't have our defenses up for it. People don't go around saying how bad smoking is uh, when they're talking about vaping. They're talking about smoking, and they don't even say it anymore. So the this is a kind of a a, a nice artifact of this period where you've got gangs in the street what how how does billy burn uh start off his his career his kindergarten right and i i, I thought oh he was in kindergarten no as soon as the book gets going you realize oh it has nothing to do with actual schooling he's making a metaphor here and his job was to get a a, a dented bucket from the uh bar down the street and fill it up with beer and bring it out to his heroes which were a bunch of thugs who go around beating people up for money, um, and you know, just ref- letting letting them drink from a beer bucket all day long, right? That is essentially what the story is about: is is alcoholism and how it has a negative effect on a certain class of people. I don't think that um, we get a lot of from like I was wondering if the reason. Terrier or Derrier was was um, a disgraced French officer is because he drank too much, right? If there was a, a sort of a theme going throughout this, but I don't remember Barbara saying, you know, my father doesn't drink <laughs> or anything like that. Was that in there? But th- this has always been very class based, anyway. Yeah. Even the smoking, stuff, right? Smoking is a relatively cheap. It's social. It's something, you know, that's not that expensive that people can kind of do together mm-hmm. and, and chit chat. And then, and I don't, I mean, I don't want to comment on the health benefits of, of smoking one way or the other, but that's not really what, what I'm thinking about. It's, it was, it's a working class leisure mm-hmm. that got suppressed and drinking was another one at one time. And, um, I don't know. The work ethic is, a, is like with the drink too. The work ethic is a big part of that. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of the paranoia about drugs is, is that it's, people not working it's people finding some meaning in life maybe it's artificial or not as meaningful as some other things we could think of perhaps but it is people kind of finding meaning outside of outside of work it's often done socially mm. like marijuana or something mm-hmm. and that the, the, these things got to get you know clamped down on i think that, that was a lot was going on yeah. with drinking i think yeah and and if you read sorry to bring up jack london again but uh john barleycorn I, I can't recommend this book enough. This uh, this is alcoholic memoirs, mm-hmm. and it, it's kind of a novel, but it's it's heavily autobiographical. But I'm not sure what's fictionalized or not. But he talks about how he started drinking when he was like six or four or something, you know, really really young, and how he didn't really like it. And yet he would always say, you know, I I didn't really like the taste of alcohol that much. But what he insists on is that this was such a deep part of the working class culture that he was in. It was just part of your working life. Mm-hmm. And you couldn't function in that world without drink. It was, and well, it keeps you. Know, it's, it keeps it's a very you working, convincing right? thing. It's, it gets you past the pain, yeah. right? A lot of these. Yeah, but Burroughs doesn't else. have this kind of empathy no. for, for for drinking at all, or for no, he, that he, culture. He doesn't have any empathy for that culture at all. He he has empathy for the for the manliness of it, right? Yeah, maybe. How, how it makes your muscles big and makes you strong and makes you. Uh, he has sort of a uh, a kind, but not for the manners, right? Not for the mm-hmm. manners that come with it. And so he does need reform. Whereas I don't see that with um, uh, John Carter, right? What he needs is probably to be uh, 
uh, taken to the mental hospital because he's insane. <laughs> he's thinking he's on Mars, right? But uh, <laughs> hey, what what you what what wait, were you trying to uh, recast John Carter as a as as psychosis? I and, think that, that uh, that's fabulation? in the book. I think that's in the book. Absolutely. Um, but obviously, that's not the main takeaway, right? It, that's that's a really weird reading of that. No, novel, it's in the book. I mean, he 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 even questions whether he's he's insane at one point, right? Um, but he, he quickly yeah. dismisses it, and uh, you know, uh, it's a Burrow, it's a Burroughs novel, so yeah, he quickly dismisses it. It's not like say. Stephen Donaldson's Lord Fowl's Bane, where he spends half the book deciding, am I really in this right, land? Right, right. Oh, is me. Oh, God. Sorry. No, but it fits gonna, in the tradition. Go you, you see it in yeah. uh, in later books, right? The Glory, Glory Road does the same thing. Where it, yes. It, is that yeah. he's, he's, he's visiting this fantasy world that's outside of r- regular reality, and he questions it. Um, here, I don't think that... I mean, it is a fantasy world, right? There, there is no island with Japanese breeding with uh, Malays to make a hybrid uh, Japanese Sa- samurai, samurai cannibal. cannibal. Well, I, 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 I was promised cannibals. I don't remember any cannibalism actually in the book, unfortunately. Um, but they are a nice uh, way for Billy to show his 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 prowess, and it's I mean, it's fun to see samurai. Taken on, uh, you know, uh, sailors at this point. I kept thinking of him as Popeye. Do you guys get that sense? Maybe that that was the narrator. Popeye. Yeah. Which Popeye? You know Popeye, right? The yeah, I know. The, but who's, who's Popeye? Oh, uh, oh, Billy Byrne, the mucker. Just because I I am what I am, and that's all that I am. You know. <laughs> Well, well, well. There's, there's, there's a, there's a scene when he gets back and he's in the boxing ring and he's getting beaten down and beaten down and he finally, yeah, finally Popeye style gets basically gets off the mat to win. Yeah, he so, doesn't break up the spinach, but it's pretty much the same sort of. Uh, yeah, 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 I, yeah. It's everything except the can of spinach to get himself, uh, get get himself to uh to the victor to the point where yeah he can like tell 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 the guy oh yeah. Bet at this part of the round, and 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 you'll make lots of money. Put a bet there for me because I'm going to take this guy out now. That 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 I mean that's that. This is where we see Billy at his new height, where he's finally in full control of himself and can actually turn his talents towards uh, towards product. I mean, I'm okay. Boxing's not a high class thing, but it's higher class than what he's been doing all his life. He can finally turn his talents towards something relatively useful he's I, I i mean because because he gets i think he gets tempted by drink once once he gets back off the island and he says nope not gonna do it mm-hmm. not gonna do it because because he tries to give him some in the round in in the final boxing match right yeah yeah and he says nope not gonna t- touch the drop because that who's a professor down the right <laughs> right uh, the, the, it's referenced a few times that uh it's the science right the science of, of boxing um but that, yeah. that's the kind of education that Billy can get. And, uh, did you guys hear? You probably didn't hear it, but um, uh, Joe Rogan had um, Mike Tyson on uh, his podcast. No, I missed that. Okay, Mike Tyson um, uh, didn't want to talk a lot about his youth, but he does talk a lot about it. Um, because Joe Rogan kept asking him about him, and it was it was like it, it was a 
a low class guy who's got an basically drug addicted parent and he's taken under the wing of a of a boxer who teaches him to use his his anger and um his you know hate hate in a way that makes him you know a monster like literally trying to you know amp up the idea that he's a monster and he's he um it's a very compelling story and it's the thing is is i think that burroughs is not making up all of the, that's the stuff that he knows right i don't think he knows anything about samurai he's he's got the daimyo <laughs> no he's got he's got uh like the fact that um J- japanese are more uh endogamous than almost any other uh group you know is probably going against this story a lot there are not a lot of japanese colonies where the the Japanese are mixing with other groups, right? And so if this was right. a some sort of lost colony of Japan, I, I don't think it would have worked out the way he sort of has it working out, which is it's a mix. They're headhunters and Japanese. Um, because he, he basically just wants to have, you know, middle-aged samurais, <laughs> middle-aged samurais. Yeah. Medieval yeah, yeah, I think he, yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, I think you just want to bring. I mean, I mean, it's a whole Burroughs lost out of time thing that, or like weird clash of ancient and modern. Look, yeah. like we get, we get, we get in Mars and and Pellucidar and elsewhere where, and he just wanted to have the cool idea of samurai head. I mean, he must have wrote at some point samurai headhunters question mark and thought, now how can I use this in a story? Oh, I know, I'll stick them on an island. Mm-hmm. And have my protagonists run into them. The, I mean, I, it's it's like the land of time forgot, where you know you've got dinosaurs on an island. Oh, nobody noticed this before. Okay. Yes, exactly, exactly. It's like, wait, what? I mean, it's fun because I mean, we talked before about the style and how easy this goes down. Super easy. But 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 if you think about it, like, wait a minute, as you pointed out, yes, the endogamy alone is like, no, that's not how the culture would work. No. You might get you you get. Inbred, uh, inbred Japanese population, and and then you'd have the cannibals, and that would be a different story, and you wouldn't have what you really were looking mm-hmm. for here. Mm-hmm. In fact, he did put he did put a little bit of thought in in where these guys came from. That one, I, I appreciated that um, by Burroughs, mm-hmm. where he actually must have had at least some superficial Japanese Not, history. Yeah, yeah. they're like it's the late Ashikaga uh, daimyo, right? Mm-hmm. That. Before the Tokugawa, before that civil war right. that eventually led to the rise of the Tokugawa, mm-hmm. which was the regime there when when Perry comes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there, I don't know. I, I want to think. You know, I, I wish maybe I, I knew more about how Americans in the early twentieth century, you know, looked at Japan. You know, in in culture, looked at the Pacific more broadly, right? Because, you know, here it's presented as just kind of a, a lawless frontier, the Pacific overall. Mm-hmm. Right? All these all these uninhabited islands that no one visits, you know, once every, except once every hundred years, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this is the image, and I think that's that seems right. Um, even if you take a look at, like, Madame Butterfly, which, of course, that's an Italian text, but... This idea that this American imperialist can just kind of come in and, and break all the rules of, of sexual morality and marriage, right? Because mm. he's the he's the strapping imperialist walking into you know, walking into Japan, 
right? Getting his bride in his house, right? All that. But uh, I don't know. I, th- I, I think there's something really interesting and to look at this work and maybe others to see just what is this this image of, of the Pacific out there? Because this is at the time the U.S. is building an empire in the mm-hmm. Pacific. Right? One of the, you know, a pretty big one. Mm-hmm. Not just the Philippines, but all those islands, right? And it, I don't know. I I I I think there's 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 something really interesting there in this novel that's maybe pointing to other other culture, but other cultural relics. Speaking on this, uh, you know, be, given that the Pacific War is was one of the most vicious wars in human history, mm. uh, and one of the most you know violent and destructive, you know, where did that come from? All right, mm-hmm. and how did culture play into just the that clash, that that Titanic clash of of the mid twentieth century? I think uh, it's always it's always nice to think uh, about how it is science fictional. So this is one of yeah. one of the you know when I started doing this podcast, we started with uh, sorry Edgar Rice Burroughs podcast, right? We started with the ones that are the most explicitly SFF related. Um, so we've got Tarzan, which is uh, maybe a little less SFE than most people think, but actually it's about about um, the blank slate, the idea of science. You know, what makes a a person a a person? Is it their upbringing? Is it genetics? And this is a, a sort of one of these natural experiments. Except, of course, it's nothing natural about it. It's a book. Um, it's not a real. It's not based on a true story. But there are there are wild children, um, you know, throughout history and also throughout fiction. So it's dealing with that, and and that's a kind of science. Um, the burrows are uh, on other planets, the Carson of Venuses and the um, the John Carter of Marses. Uh, he's got stories set at the center of the Earth. He's got all sorts of much more explicitly SF-related things, but. Um, in the same way that um, our last uh, Melville, Taipei, is is about getting on a ship and going out and seeing what's there, and what you find is an alien culture. That is what the Pacific is. The Pacific is is spaceships and uh, space and island worlds. Uh, allowing you to have adventures. So the fact that they can have ships out there from far away, it is explicitly changed to rocket ships for magazines like Planet Stories and FNSF, right? Uh, Galaxy Magazine. They're explicitly changed so that those cultures are uh, not supposed to be even on Earth. But the messaging and and the ideas and the manliness and all that stuff is transferable from the ocean to space and and was done so for a long time and it's not in the it's not usually done in the way that say um ted chang would do it right which is okay let's look at the biology of actual uh what what it would be like on stars uh what chemistry would be going on there and then let's do a story that um has those creatures contacting humans because that would be something that he would do, but rather it would be like 
okay, let's have another planet where they have just one little weird tick that's a slightly different. Right? So the, the monsters here, the uh, basically we get the names of two Japanese uh, samurai guys, right? The, the father and the son, and that's that's it. Um, it's all yep. for the sake of allowing Billy to have his adventures. And those are fun adventures, but um, in in amongst his adventures, there are these social class things. So the and the other thing is, is who is this audience for? Like this is we are not the intended audience for this, right? He's not selling. It, Burroughs was not selling this book for the ages or for us. He was selling it to a pulp magazine, right? All Story Weekly, and. He wants to make money. That was his explicit, right? He's not like Lovecraft, where he's like, I have this weird art that I like to do, and some people appreciate it. My friends <laughs> submitted it to this magazine. No, he's saying, I want to make some money. I can write as bad as anybody else out there. I can make lots of this money, right? And he, he really did. He did it really well. Um, but who's he selling it to? He's selling it to the workman who's on the train or on the bus headed to work. And he wants some evening entertainment when he gets home while he's he's on the bus and he stops at the bus stop and he gets a, the newsstand and 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 sees this you know cool looking uh, train heist happening on the cover of a magazine and he says oh that sounds good oh, oh it's by the guy who wrote Tarzan I like that stuff right so thinking about who who the audience is for the other cool thing is. Um, if you see what Burroughs is doing throughout his career, he's just trying to find out what what sells, right? And so the Mucker didn't sell that well. It, it was it was okay because there was a sequel and another sequel and maybe a third sequel sorta, right? There's the Mucker, the Return of the Mucker, and something called the Oakdale Affair. I haven't read the other two, the Return or the Oakdale Affair, but this is um, fitting into kind it's kind of his version of a Yellow Peril story, which was a very popular genre. Right, you got Samurais, <laughs> which is uh, part of the Yellow Peril thing. Um, I, I had a feeling it was going to be set in San Francisco and it was all going to be about the um, the gangs or the tongs there. But <laughs> but obviously that's more ch- Chinese than Japanese, and that doesn't fit with... So he had to find some way to get the Japanese stuff going. So he's got the ship the ship action, and he's got the uh, learning to be a sailor. And this is a genre that um, you guys probably not as familiar with i'm a big fan of uh robert e howard robert e howard wrote a lot of sailor stories he has a character named sailor steve costigan who is a boxer um he's um, in the merchant marine and he goes from port to port basically beating people up <laughs> and it's quite enjoyable stuff it's it's just you know uh muscle muscle sort of doofuses who uh have good hearts and and like punching people and bragging about it and and it, and you you enjoy it it's a more of a comedy piece but what i like is i'm looking at this artifact of sort of a genre that's gone away the the sailor tough guy right and that's why i was thinking of popeye and the way popeye talks in the cartoons you know because he has the same sort of vocabulary he's he's one of these strange guys with a tattoo now everybody <laughs> Everybody uh, in the middle classes um, have tattoos. I don't know about the upper classes, but the middle classes have tattoos, and I'm not sure if the lower classes do or not, but um, sailors were the ones who made this really sort of a thing, right? 
come back <laughs> in Taipei, come come back with all sorts of weird tattoos, and and uh, you look at other sailors' tattoos because you got nothing else to do on the ship during the slow hours, I guess. It's like uh, it, it's a prison thing, <laughs> right? On your off hours. I'm sorry. I'm, so, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm just imagining sailors staring at each other's tattoos, Jesse. Well, just, no, it, 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 it is. They tell they tell stories, right? They say, I got this in Shanghai, yeah. and right. Uh, one of my profs, um, he he had a tattoo, and he was in the Merchant Marine, and I was like, what the hell? You have a tattoo? Because you know you don't see it uh, like except around certain classes of people, right? Um, and and so he had like a, one of those traditional Popeye anchor tattoos, and I like when I saw it, he had rolled up his sleeve. This is one of my English English uh, profs. I, I couldn't believe it. I was like, is that real? <laughs> because it, it just never shows up. Now, um, pretty much everybody gets tattoos, and they're not for from going to, you know, sailing. It's from their anime character that they like or whatever. So I, I had some stuff to say there. I don't know if it makes any sense. but Okay, what about the Yellow Peril thing? Um, what what do you think the heart of the yellow peril story is, is, is what's, what's the peril? What's the anxiety? Well, I, uh, I, 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 you're the one who mentioned yellow peril even before we read this book, yeah. right? You, you said this is a yellow peril novel. So I really like it. the yellow. I, I think the yellow peril is, is wonderful. Um, <laughs> cause it's, it's a, it's a fake threat. That's really fun to think about. Um, but what's the threat? What exactly is there's the a, there's a number of them. So there, I think there's a genuine fear, uh, from racist Fox who think that they're outbreeding us and they're smarter than us, right? Um, they think that the Asian hordes are going to overwhelm uh, North America and take over. Um, and that's going to be a bad thing. Um, <laughs> so, it, But it's not just the, the overtaking. It's, there's, especially you got to, when I think of the, the time this was written, this, this is when America, um, the United States had eugenics laws, you know, in certain states, laws against intermarriage between races and things. So this is, uh, I don't know, I have a PDF, so I'm not sure what page this is, but um, it's when they first meet, the, first get the story of these Japanese. Upon this unfrequent and distant Japanese isle, the exiles have retained all of their medieval military savagery, to which have been added the aboriginal ferocity right. of the headhunting natives who had found there and with whom they had intermarried. The little colony, far from making any advances in arts or letters, had, on the contrary, relapsed into primeval ignorance as deep as that of the natives with whom they had cast their lot, only in their arms and armor. Their military training and discipline, did they show any influence of their civilized progenitors? Mm. Now, the the racial kind of hierarchy of the, the way scientific racism kind of ranked the races Japanese was a little bit different. And sometimes there was five, sometimes there was four, but it was it was white, yellow, then it would be like brown, which I get those melees would be mm. considered brown. And then it was like black and red. Mm -hmm. I, and sometimes the order would be different, but it was always like white and yellow at the top. Right. And this led even some like Chinese eugenicists. I think there's this famous reformer named Kang Yue who even suggested maybe whites and Asians should interbreed more because you're getting kind of the best of the two top mm -hmm. races. Right. But the point is, these Japanese were civilized and they were degenerated by intermingling with degenerate like racial stock mm -hmm. yeah and that's it's, it's not just that the eight like the, that the yellow peril is going to come and wipe us out it's that the same fear what you know what whether it was about interracial marriage between blacks and whites or slavs coming in from eastern europe 
the panic in the progressive era was about miscegenation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was the, the immigration debate was all tied up with miscegenation, mm-hmm. it seems to me. And, 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 and so just, this is so the I, warning. It's the warning to us. Yeah, if you let and, the and that, if, if, right. thinking about the ending, Paul, thinking about the ending, what, what does he do? Mm-hmm. He fails to interbreed with the upper class, which is... Oh, Which at is least in the original so novel. Much about well, in in this novel, right? He, right, right. In the in the in the sequel, at the end, he rescues Barbara and decides not to give her up again. Yeah, ah. he, he he rescues in the sequel. He rescues Barbara from bandits in Mexico and decides, nope, I'm not going to give you up again. And they run off into the sunset together, so to speak. So, well, I, uh, so did you so, read the Oakdale affair? Because that I have not. I have not read the Oakdale maybe, affair. Maybe maybe he gives I did her up again. <laughs> But, but, but I did find it interesting, yeah, that That's he basically that he, 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 he doesn't he have the courage of his convictions. To, yeah, he needs to have the the upper class to be fulfilled. Yeah, and, and to civilize him. But speaking of the yellow pill, have either of you ever read Cyril Cornbluth's Two Dooms? No, but uh, I, I I think you mentioned it before and. That's uh, Cornbluth is an interesting figure because he's wrong about almost everything, but he's he's so interestingly thinking about stuff while he's wrong about it. Well, so 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 so, so two so two dooms. It, the main character is an is a atomic scientist in the early 1940s in New Mexico, and he's kind of worried about what he's whether his research, which is basically on the atomic bomb, is a good thing or not. And so he meets a. He meets, a, I believe it's a Hopi Indian who basically gives him some psychedelic drug to basically open his mind and see what well, what, it, what his uh, research will lead to if he gives up or will not lead to if he gives up. And he accidentally gets transported into a world hundreds of years in the future where basically the Germans, the, the Germans and the Japanese have conquered the United States and the entire West is – basically completely full of uh, Asians. They basically decide to move in en masse in the millions and basically colonize the entire place. It's very, very yellow pearly that way. He's he, he There's very much tones of disgust and upset that they basically have ruined the countryside. And I, I, I think Cornbluth is is basically pointing at yellow pearly, saying this is really stupid, but it, it gives the whole idea that, oh, this is... This is this is what they're afraid of. They're afraid of us them coming here and taking our land and taking our women and ruining the country. And when he gets to Chicago and runs into the into the Germans, it gets even worse because they have some really weird ideas about uh, about interbreeding of their own. So, and then he finally gets back to our world and says, "Yep, I better, I better work on the atomic bomb, basically to save America from these threats." It's a very very strange story. So, uh, there's another way of tackling the yellow peril as what, what it's, what it's about. What's it like? The thing I like about it is that it's, it, it's fun storytelling. It's, it, and, and I, I see the threat is so fake as to be like yeah. not worthy of attention. Uh, what, the funny thing about the um, Fu Manchu stories, right? Is that, that as, as you read the books, as the books go on, he becomes more and more um, sort of sympathetic, but, I I found just from the very beginning these these racist uh, Nyland and Doctor Petrie characters are so racist that that I was on the mysterious Doctor Fu Manchu's side the whole time, right? <laughs> Even though he's he's not on stage, I I'm like they're saying all these bad things about him that he wants to do all these things, basically establish uh, sort of uh, sort of. <laughs> 
a, Jap a Japanese Chinese um, empire that's gonna, you know, go throughout the world and make things different. <laughs> well, they're trying. They're, meanwhile, they're like uh, they're thinking of the the uh, this while he they're in places like Hong Kong, which is you know white colonizers going into China, right? And so yeah. Uh yeah, you can totally read Fumanchu no, these days as an anti-colonialist it, narrative. It's very fun. It's very fun to think about um, that, and 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 it's almost like as the author writes more and more, he realizes that his his two heroes, Nyland and Petrie, are actually not that interesting, and they're kind of boring, and that that um, in fact the so the one with all the principles and the one with all the I mean he's also smart right that's the thing they say about him he's so devilishly smart right and he's so devilishly ambitious right so it's only like when his daughter betrays him that that he ever loot you know things go wrong somehow it's not that Petrie is uh, such a brilliant man right? it's just they sort of luck into the fact that um, he doesn't have the best uh, plans maybe uh, ultimately but the thing is, is as a, as a sort of a genre, the Yellow Peril is very fun, um, but it it's sort of gone away as sort of you know nobody writes Yellow Peril stories on, anymore. But notice we didn't get a lot of Red Scare uh, books in it, like it wasn't a genre of storytelling as much it was a government top down. So I think Yellow Perils is both um, up and down. People at the bottom. Um, are genuinely interested in the East. And this is a way of seeing stories set in the East where, you know, if if you see... Uh, yesterday, Paul, I um, I put up a Judge D book, right? And I sent oh, you the yeah, map. Oh, yeah. I saw, yeah, uh, yeah, th yeah, that's a great and map. It's, I really like Judge D by Robert Van Gulick. These are stories so, sort of like Sherlock Holmes except based on a real guy and... In, in yeah, from like... Tang China, sixth century right. idea, and it's it's fun because it's uh, it's seeing Sherlock Holmes operating in a wholly different culture. Basically, um, he's got slightly different methods, but the 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 spending time in a foreign culture is genuinely interesting. And so, if you've got an adventure book, it uh, makes sense to s send a character like your reader into this story and have him experience what that's like. This is a way for Yellow Peril stuff to work. Right? But Red Scare stuff doesn't really come around as a genre, and it, until like we get a movie like Red Dawn, right, where where oh America's going to get invaded, and um, Red Dawn does a really really nice job with it because of of this extra threat of nukes, right? The 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 main threat of the Yellow Peril is they're going to outbreed us, right? They're gonna they're gonna outbreed us, and their sheer force of numbers is going to uh, make it impossible for us to us white people who don't breed enough clearly right this is what a lot of the people at the time were thinking we need breeding programs like the nazis are doing or whatever um the red the red scare the horror of communism coming in doesn't really get uh its own genre as much as the yellow peril stuff does but it's equally interesting and yet when i don't know if you guys knew this but they tried to remake red dawn or they I, did remake oh god red yeah dawn. <laughs> they're originally going to have it as chinese but that that they, they were either they were going to cut off the market for that's uh, right you can't and so, so they the made it chinese so, market so the, mighty, so the mighty north koreans that's invade right. the united states it's like really 
<laughs> Come on! What I liked about the original Red Dawn is, is they sort of, I mean, they don't really show you the whole war, but they give you this, okay, look, there's the Cubans are in on this, right? Because this is the this is the wages of, of colonialism. You telling the, the Cubans how what kind of government they can have, well, that's going to come back to you. Yeah, and in the 60s and 70s, there were plenty of Cuban mercenaries running around Africa so and, and Central America. So that was not entirely right, implausible. Right, right. Absolutely. And with the with the what we thought was the might of the the Soviet Empire. Right. And and they've got they've got a kind of discipline and a kind of interest that we we um, love and hate. Right. <laughs> we would like to be so organized as as they are. We would like to have this sort of fundamental pr- principles as as they do, you know, the brotherhood of man and all people under one uh, system and no classes. Right. These are all the threats. And so that that original Red Dawn movie, it actually works because it's set in an era when we didn't know that the Soviet Union was I- incapable of doing that. Now it can't work at all. And that's why that, that in, I, I think there was an uh, Australian red, uh, red Peril slash Yellow Peril invasion movie as well. There um, was. I'm trying to remember the name of I've, that. I, I can't remember the name of it. I've seen it. It's weird. Yes, it is. It's weird. very Australian. But yeah, uh, but uh, if you think of what the the mucker has going, right? It's it's not so much an invasion by force of army, but by at the, at, uh, quite late in the book, right? He's he's so feared by the the Japanese that the whole areas of the island are taboo, right? Because he's so powerful and dangerous, the White Ghost or whatever they call him. That's a different book. But um, I, yeah, I, I'm definitely into the idea of of this being a yellow peril story. And again, it comes from a place of ignorance, right? I don't think I don't I really don't think that Burroughs traveled to anywhere in Asia. As far as I know, he didn't basically leave the United States ever. Um, and he was he was definitely a racist dude too. Uh, his uh, his his racism I don't think is very explicit, other than you know some of the language in here. But notice that uh, I thought that Evan would like this too. Um, at some point, he he keeps calling them chinks, even though it's not the right term, right? I think is it Barbara who says don't use that word. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is funny because um, she has no problem with you know them being killed. That's fine, but you have to use the right words for it, right? That's really the the interesting thing about. It's not the actions, you know, the fact that she killed uh, 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 one of these guys who was a rapist, right? Uh, it was not that they threatened the sun. It was not that uh, they're, you know, invaders on this island or anything. It's it's not it's not um, any actual behavior she wants changed. It's just the words she wants changed. It's not dignified. It's not the right. It's not the right word for it. But he's just too stupid, kinda. Right is the problem, or too ignorant, and and those that sort of top-down um, acceptance that he 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 takes on board, and how did how's it? He says um, I'll live. She says uh, I'll live on my what is it Park Avenue and and he'll he'll uh, live in his you know slum neighborhood, and she says well you could live across the street from me right, and they're just <laughs> talking about basically. Uh, it's almost like a fantasy world of of this 
little, I don't know, hollow in the woods, right? <laughs> it has nothing to do with reality, but that's important to her, and it and it becomes and important, it's important to, him. to him, yeah. And it becomes important to him, and that's pretty funny, because it's absolutely as it's it's as real as anything else in this book, which is totally unreal. But that's so explicitly unreal because it's doubly unreal, right? It, it's a it's an unreal inside of the of the unreal of the book, and yet that is very important for the upper class, right? The aristocracy, as they're called in this book. And, and uh, there's so much jockeying for, like, who's going to marry this girl, right? Inherit her fortune. And, and in yeah, fact, she's the whole pri- plot. She's surprised to be one. I, she's surprised to be one, but I did I did find it interesting. Sorry to interrupt you, Steve. No, that no, she it. does have some agency and ideas of her own. I mean, she's the one that understands the Japanese language and right. culture enough to realize what exactly they've fallen into. So she's she's not quite the damsel in the stress I I was afraid we were going to get. I, I mean, I did. He, he, he doesn't do a lot of those. He's yeah, yeah, he makes active women. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I wasn't expecting Deja Thoris, but I was afraid, like, okay, upper upper upper. Uh, Upper class, young, rich woman. What, what can she actually do actively in this scenario? I was thinking as I was reading this, and then when she, when we realized she, I mean she, she understands the language. She she figures out what's going on. She stabs she stabs the chief. Like, yay, okay. This I was worried for, for a bit, Burroughs, but you got you got me. Uh, you got you got to find that she actually has some agency, power, and capability of her own. I, I was worried that you'd set up a scenario where you couldn't have a protag- have a female protagonist do that, but you did, thankfully. Mm-hmm. Well, the, I thought a lot about her her knowing Japanese, and mm. maybe it's as you say, it's just it's they needed someone who could speak Japanese, and he gave it to her because he needed her to have her something to give her something to do. Um, but you know, I thought uh, that there might be something more to it, in the sense that. I mean, this overall image of the Pacific, right? You got all this empty land. You got the lawlessness. You got pirates, the headhunters, the weird island people, right? But on top of that, which is kind of hidden in the story, is back to this. It is the center place of of the American Empire in the early twentieth century, right? Um, it's where the fleet is. It's it's mm. it's where the U.S. ambitions are at that point, right? It's it, in that age of imperialism, this mm-hmm. was that was the U.S. zone. Um, so, in that context, maybe it's not that preposterous that someone would know Japanese, but it would be someone who understands the Pacific in a way that the mucker can't ever know about it, right? Mm-hmm. Like most of the people who read this book don't weren't going to know the Pacific as anything else than just kind of the, you know this fantasy world or presented with, but there are the technocrats who are organizing this empire out there, and they would be people who know Japanese. It's like, didn't Obama, doesn't Obama have his kids, didn't he have his kids learning Chinese or something? Hmm. Or is that the, or is that the, the princess over in England? Uh, learning Chinese as a second language or something, too. It makes sense. Uh, you know, it uh, it makes more sense. Part than of the French, training of the right? technocracy and the, yeah. the ruling class. That's right. Um, it's it's it, w- w- what the British were always learning German, right? They were sending their kids to yeah. German lessons. Um, did you guys see the uh, there was a a movie from 2016, uh, Legend of Tarzan? Did you guys see that? I didn't see that Tarzan. 
No, didn't see it. It's good. It's uh, I know about it. It's a it's not based on a particular story. Um, it's got what I kind of like about it is unlike uh, most of the time when they do a Tarzan movie, they don't do his origin story, right? I mean, I think it might be you know a little montage or something, or a little flashback or something, but it's just a Tarzan story and. He he wrote a ton of Tarzan, right? Uh, he he wrote a lot of um, Barsoom books and at least three Carson of Venus books, right? And there's some Center of the Earth books, but mostly he wrote Tarzan. Tarzan was his his money maker, in a certain sense, his sort of premier character. It's it's if anybody remembers him, it's for Tarzan, right? Um, and one of the interesting things about this was. It's trying to be a modern story, but of course it's set in a period, right? It's set in the, uh, yeah, I don't know, 19th century, late 19th century. Um, and it's it's trying to deal with a real horror that was happening in uh, Africa, which is the, uh, the uh, Belgian Congo and what the mm-hmm. Belgians were doing. So it's kind of like, Tarzan in the Heart of Darkness is <laughs> right. You've got um, Tarzan going in and trying to help the people who the the, the tribal people who are um, under pressure from. Uh, they actually have the the villain is a historical character, which is interesting, right? Um, there's this guy named um, Rom Leon Rom, who's a Belgian. Uh, administrator in, and he's he's kind of like the monster of um, of Heart of Darkness, right? He's the guy who's who's enforcing the will of King Leopold in this place to extract value, colonial value, right? Um, in mostly raw materials, and I guess the traditional one is uh, ivory. So seeing this white savior come in, who's not completely white, right? Because he's he's of the jungle, and that's the same thing. What we've got here is we've got this white savior who's um, he's undignified. He's more jungle-like. He's like uh, I love the description of him at the book at the beginning of the book. Um, he and his friends don't have hands; they have mitts or paws, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I love how they use that language. That's right. He's very animalistic, um, and the the jungle that he comes from are the mean streets of Chicago, right? Where um, it's perfectly fine to beat people up, including cops, but not if they're from another tribe. <laughs> so very tribalistic, and 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 yet he comes to. Uh, change his values some somehow um and it's interesting though that this is a book about psychology psychology and psychological change um and the, the possibility of becoming a uh, a civilized man right in the same way that tar like i think he's really dealing with the same stuff over and over again um and, and the exception seems to be uh with with John Carter Mars, where he is, he is accepting something rather than changing. He's accepting that he's in this new world where he has to learn all the rules and, um, but essentially he keeps the same values. It, it's always striking to me like that he ends up 
married to a red princess, right? And and the people that drove him into the cave were red Indians, right? The, the thing that drew... Yep. So he is dealing with race. He's just not good at dealing with it, right? Because <laughs> he, he sort of oh. gets distracted by it. And, and so when you've got this... Uh, figure like Mowgli is Indian right he's a he's a native Indian in India and so his stories are not um the stories of a white boy in India and taming the Indians or anything like that it's a boy who was separated from it's much less about race than it is about just the idea of storytelling and here with this book it's all class. It's not really about race at all. It has that race setting. But, and, you know, the talk about the mixing of the races and what it's done, it just made them more savage. It's just to make Billy all the tougher, right? When he takes on a room full of samurai, right? Is that they're vicious, right? <laughs> <laughs> and notice how many times his, his pistol fails him, right? The pistol he took from Terrier. Every time he gets to, into a fight, he tries to use it and it, misfires right? <laughs> and so he throw, at one point he throws it to the ground and just grabs onto that samurai sword and goes after them and he takes these injuries that normally kill everybody else and he just sort of shakes his head and it, 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 the, uh, this comes up so many times like the first battle he, he gets a severe stab and by a spear or something and they think he's going to die and then he's, no, he's up and around he's carrying a guy who was a minute ago thinking he was going to die and then uh, in fact, right at the beginning too, there's a, a a fight that's like that where he 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 hits somebody over the head and then uh, knocks them out and takes on two more guys and one of them hits him and it he he just shakes it off and keeps going and then at the final boxing match he gets he he opens himself up for a punch and the guy thinks it's going to knock him out and it has no effect right so there, there's some some sort of primal you know brutality of the of the mean streets of it and and there's one other ra- racial element going on in here do you remember um he he does he has the um the tracking ability of a of a red indian at one point mm-hmm. right and that kind of um it's so f- from an era that's thinking about race all the time that it, even when it, it's a book that's not about race, really, it's about class. It still, it still informs all the language, which it's it's fun. I, I liked reading this book. It was very interesting and and easy. It, 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 I mean, it's not high art, but very little Burroughs is, but entertaining. Yes, it, it absolutely. And and these days with a broken foot, I can I can go for. Easy entertainment and uh, not complain at all. I don't. Need, I don't need the deep. I don't need the deep thinking right about now. I need something to keep my mind off of. Uh, I, I don't even think it's situations. like radically, radically easier than than uh, Type E, right? It's it's just breezy, right? It's not that the breezy. Language, that's a good phrase. It's not that the language. Yeah. It, it's it's relaxing almost, right? And because it's pretty much all on the surface. There's the, the psychology is on the surface so that we follow his psychology from the narrator's point of view. And yet it is this artifact from a period where, yeah, you can get Shanghai, right? All the sort of tropes of the pulp magazines 
um, are in in here and enjoyable, and I like <laughs> having like, jeez, oh, I could like, I'd kind of like to be Shanghai, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> notice that that's actually uh, yeah, the, yeah, the a, actual a racist word is, term, right? <laughs> yeah, the the, uh, the actual t- phrase itself contains uh, some uh, racist to Shanghai. I'd like to see sh- Shanghai, right? Well, well, you know, you, I mean, Evan can probably, since he's lived in China, can tell you much more about how and why Shanghai was founded. And it, it, it was, it was yeah. a, originally a, a European colony, wasn't it? No, it was a, it was a Chinese city before. It, it experienced its first major growth as a result of the Taiping Rebellion. And there was a major rebellion in that mm-hmm. part of China. Oh, yeah. Sorry, from the south, but it spread to the north. Um, and that led to a lot of refugees moving into the cities. Um, and it eventually, it was one of the first cities opened after the Opium War mm-hmm. in, uh, in 1942. And it, it had kind of a, a European city, you know, the international settlements within the, within Shanghai, but its real growth happened a little bit later. Um, I think it was chosen as a port just cause it, it had those good natural harbors, mm-hmm which is why there was interest, but it really grew in the 1860s and later and became really, what's cool about Shanghai is it was an immigrant city in China. It's the prototype of China's cities now, which mm. are all immigrant cities. You, you China's mean, immigrant, like people moving from other parts of China to that city, or you mean people? Yeah, from, from within China, but right. China's so huge, right? And right. there's so many different cultures. I mean, they talk about themselves as all one people, and mm. that's nationalist nonsense, but... You know, China is just really diverse, and it's it's pulling in people from all these different regions and really different regional cultures. It it, uh, it took me a long time to learn that yeah, China is not all Han Chinese. It's like I was like, whoa! It's like really, it's fun. It's like so many different uh, cultures and uh, ethnic ethnic minorities throughout China. It's like holy crap! I never knew this. That's just even among the Han, there's a lot of diversity. So there's this wonderful book called Sisters and Strangers. And the title is really meaningful here. It's by a woman named Emily Honig, and it's about the cotton women cotton mill workers in Shanghai. And they were sisters because they, they kind of shared this working class experience, but they're also strangers because they're they're all immigrants, right? Mm. And she writes a lot about the, this group of people called the Subei, which is just referring to the region they're from. And they were like seen as lower class and kind of uncivilized, and they were given the low skilled jobs, while people from like Canton, who went up to Shanghai, they got they had better connections and got better jobs, and they were considered more high skilled. So it's there. There is that 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 deep diversity, and I think that's what makes Shanghai that's kind of an what I would call almost like an immigrant city. Mm. Not not international so much, but um, I guess the foreigners get some a lot of attention. So, but there's a lot of that internal. But this is the prototype for Chinese cities now, right? They're all this flooding of people from the countryside. So the the thing that I guess people what we've been talking about is is a lot, in China is is about race, right? There's these different ethnic yeah. groups, um, not just language, but you know ethnic groups. They look slightly different, maybe, but. Um, the revolution, the Chinese revolution or revolutions. They're not about mm-hmm. race, are they? They're about class. The- well, Chinese communism is was always about nationalism, right? Maoism always had this nationalist bit because it was the revolution was in the context of empire. 
right? Mm -hmm. You know, foreign imperialism, foreign control of Chinese industry, and then they had the Japanese invasion. So it's always, nationalism was always tied to, to Maoism, more so than like in the Soviet Union, which only became more nationalist, more Russian nationalist later on, like after the war. Mm. Well, but um, you had... But China always had that strongly nationalist element to it. Um, yeah. But the nationalists, <laughs> that's, that's a side conversation. The nationalists, oh. right? The uh, Chiang Kai-shek's, um, yeah, uh, and Dr. Sun Yat-sen's, right? These are these are the those are the nationalists. But the the communists, the the support was mostly it it was class based, mm-hmm. right? No, but the, the like even the communists. So Mao has this concept, new democracy, mm-hmm. which basically means. That the the national bourgeoisie is part of the anti-colonial, anti-imperialist struggle. They're part of the revolutionary struggle. Mm-hmm. So the, these class tensions within Chinese society are not the main point of conflict. It's it's empire. It's it's the imperialist initially, mm-hmm. right? And yeah, there's some of this like you know the intellectuals get purged once in a while or whatever, right? You have the Cultural Revolution, mm-hmm. and, that, and there's class elements to that, right? But that was never the main focus of, 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 of the revolution. You still don't see it. I mean, it's, the class politics have never been as strong here as they were maybe in, in the Soviet Union where you had like the Kulak class that had to be you know, smashed and mm. stand, in the, stand in the way. This, this Maoist concept of democracy, as I understand it, was that all of the classes of China, except maybe like the foreign bootlickers, you know, or... The, the certain people, you know, are outside of this, but the vast majority of the Chinese peasants, workers, the the so-called national bourgeoisie are all part of this revolutionary struggle against empire. Mm. Mm. It's tied so up. So we as, as, as basically the argument is is like as Chinese, we're part of the global proletariat, and our own class divisions don't matter in the context of the global system. So um, what about gender? Because that uh, my understanding is the Boxer Rebellion is kind of a bit about gender as well. It's it's mm-hmm. it's uh, and that's a proto um, nationalist movement, right? I guess. Well, that was yeah, that was uphold the Qing, right? right? It was not Han nationalist, but it was anti-imperial, right? Because they said like get rid of the foreigners, uphold the Qing, which of course was a foreign dynasty itself, right? Well, right? but it was but more was... it was domestically foreign. <laughs> yeah. Now I. I don't know about like the boxers as a as a as a gendered movement, but um, you know the issue with feminism in China is it's 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 a big part of it has been like we're wasting half of our population that could be used for development. That that's that idea mm. of feminism about you educate women, you kind of liberate women because the traditional family is holding back our progress. It it's not as strongly as like you see in Western feminism where it's liberating women kind of. For their own sake, because mm. it's best for them as individuals. You don't have that individualism in it as much. But certainly, one of the first things the Chinese communists do in 1950 is reform marriage. Mm. It's, it's actually one of the most astounding transformations in family history. It's uh, banning overturning 2,000 years of, of, of concubinage yeah. and 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 the slavery of the family. Mm-hmm. Some of the like the most oppressed women in all of human history have been, were those like pre-modern Chinese women. Mm-hmm. Slip binding, uh, women being sold on markets, you know, for as concubines, um, all that. Interesting. So, 
but yeah, gender was a part of it. But their their feminism, as I again, as I understand it, was was kind of co-opted in in a way. But I'm, I'm kind of getting too much into Chinese history, I guess. Too. I don't know if it informs much of the mucker. <laughs> no, it's not directly related, but it's it's the exotic east, and we 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 always like to hear yeah. about that. I'm really no, but it's a big problem. Like when you look at the how the how the West sees like the Cultural Revolution, something right? It 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 kind of feeds into this kind of oh they're they're kind of having these weird political rallies and stuff and you know the understanding of it by most people is is rather um, insufficient. Yeah, well, I, I uh, the people I see who are from China, you know, I, my my students saying you know uh, okay I won't be here next week because I'm going back to China and I say where are you going and he says Guangdong and I'm like okay that's cool. Um, the people I'm seeing, they're all either middle class, right, or upper class. That's it. I don't get to see any of the the low class Chinese, the ones who are struggling to make a living at, you know, working in the actual massive factory that is China. These are all the children of, you know, the managers or speculators. And it's it's just... It, it, it's fascinating because it, it's very in the news, you know, right now. Uh, they just, um, uh, Canadian government just uh, made the decision, I guess, or a judge allowed uh, the idea of extraditing the head of Huawei um, to the United States for some vague crime, <laughs> which didn't happen in the United States. So we're getting like, it's terrible caught in the middle here. China's mad at Canada. That's not good. Um, I don't know if this will personally affect me. It probably won't. But, you know, you don't want to get mad. You don't want to get between the two major superpowers in the world. Um, not a good thing. And yet um, there was a great story. I, I don't know if you guys saw. I, I tweet a lot. So I, it was a local podcast I listened to. And he had a... Um, he had a viewer sent sent him in. It's a it's a podcast about BC and BC News, and he had a viewer send in a photo of a the highest end Mercedes uh, SUV, and it had two. It had a sticker on the on the back, and also it was like custom silk screened onto the um, uh, the tire cover of this very exp- like hundred thousand uh, dollar. Mercedes SUV, and it was um, all painted in the right way too. And it had the uh, the symbol of the Chinese rocket force, which is their nuclear weapons, <laughs> sitting on the street of Vancouver. Right? So, uh, what does this mean? Is the is the guy who who owns this car um, saying my dad runs the rocket force or is he the guy himself and he's like he has a home in vancouver and he like it it's so oh here it is yeah sign of the times reader photo of a luxury suv in vancouver's kitsilano bearing the insignia of the people's liberation army rocket force which is in charge of missiles including nuclear i'll send you guys this link and it's like wow um that's See, can you imagine that being on the street of uh, DC? I can't Not imagine really. that, right? And and in a way, um, 
Canada's Vancouver is become like a, a treaty port in a sort of a reverse way that is, as Shanghai has, right? Because the population here of Coquitlam is actually um, majority not white, right? It used to be majority white, and now it's majority not white. Now, you break it down, it's not like they're all Chinese. Um, it's various Asian groups mostly, Korean and, and Chinese, um, and yeah, lots of other things too. But I, it's just very interesting because this is the, a sign of the time, as he says, a sign of the times. Look at that. <laughs> that that truck is is about a hundred thousand dollars, if not more. SUV. And <laughs> what does that mean, right? It's not a it's not a uh, official vehicle, right? Because that doesn't make any sense that they would have one here. It's just a luxury vehicle that somebody's enjoying, and they're. Uh, it could be they just like the decoration. I don't know. I don't know what it means. I don't know. Sign of the times. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.